Hello and welcome back to the Clean Sailors podcast. I'm your host, Holly, founder of Clean Sailors. Now let's talk about sea, marine, sailing and keeping it clean. It's easy to think that all fish belong in the sea, but not all fish belong in all parts of the sea. Threatening local ecosystems, disrupting and at times eradicating other species entirely, and even disrupting our economies. Our boats, large and small, can transport different creatures around our waters, and at times, across whole oceans. In this episode, we'll be looking at how species spread across our planet, just what this costs us, and how the warming of our oceans is likely to make this even more pronounced. Joining me is marine spatial ecologist and all-round conservation superstar, Dr. Alexandra Davis. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Alberta and a true expert on this very matter. Tell me a little bit about you and your main areas of interest and expertise. I think of myself as just an ecologist, which just means that I study ecosystems. And so I like it because it allows you to, instead of focusing on one particular species or one particular phenomenon, you look at the system as a whole and think about how it works together. And so I end up looking at a lot of species as kind of my focal for study areas, but I also get to look at how those species interact with each other. I get to look at how species interact with the habitat, which is kind of my first love is just looking at different types of habitat and landscapes, especially in the ocean. And then you can also think about how humans interact with all those different things as well. And so it's a really holistic way to look at something, especially in marine science, kind of conversely to maybe a more traditional fisheries approach where you you have one focal species and all of your effort goes into understanding that species. So I get to look at the big picture, which is really fun for me. Ultimately, we are one, right? Now, I I think we're getting it more broadly Mm -hmm. that we're just one huge interconnected system, whether it's our talking about the ecology of our own bodies and how interconnected Mm -hmm. different areas of our own cells are versus us within a much wider ecosystem, which is ultimately the planet. And then ultimately beyond that, dare I say it, the universe. Like it's in some ways, listening to you talk about it, it's quite odd that we have been in some ways quite so siloed, whether it's in science or just our general thinking that one thing is separate from another, where to your point, everything is so interconnected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially for invasive species, which I think is is really important. A lot of times in kind of the conservation realm, we think about what do we do to conserve a species? And so that's all very proactive. What do we do to save something? And a lot of what I do is thinking about conservation in a broader term. And that includes if you want to conserve something, you also have to think about managing different species in a different way. And so maybe removing some things. And so trying to really think about invasive species as part of a conservation plan and not two separate entities. It's incredibly interesting, right? Because as you said, we're so obsessed now with conserving Mm -hmm. and restoring when actually in order to get there, there are things that actually shouldn't be there. It's happened in some cases relatively quickly, but let's talk from the very beginning. So in terms of invasive Mm -hmm. species, these are obviously species that shouldn't be where they are. Yeah, so invasive species, I think, have gone through a lot of different definitions. There's tons of different labels that people give them. So non-native, non-indigenous, alien, invasive. So they all are kind of different grades of a similar theme. And so one of the things that we think about with an invasive species is, is it an established population? And so Florida is kind of like a really classic example where you've got a lot of 
random one of an individual species, but it's not a population. And so for it to be invasive, you have to have an established population. But one of the things we also think about now is it is it having a negative effect on the native ecosystem? And so in a lot of cases, you get these introduced or, or non-native species and they don't do a thing. They're just there. They're really low numbers. They're not negatively interacting with native populations. And that tends to be fine. You get those, we end up having them being kind of like naturalized species. But the invasive species, the big thing is that it's altering the native ecosystem in a negative way. And negative way can be kind of a loose term as well, because often we think of it in terms of things that we care about, you know. And so giving very large scale environments are always changing. But what makes these things that we need to manage is the fact that they're starting to affect resources or historical things that we as humans care about. And I guess in, in terms of things that we care about, that would be food sources, recreational activities. Uh, do yeah. we have enough space? Do we have enough room? Can we sell a property? Or is it something that's going to be quite damaging and detrimental and knock the price off things? Um, appreciating mm-hmm. obviously invasive species, and we'll talk marine because obviously this is so important for our sailing and yachties and seafaring environments and listeners. But mm-hmm. these these occur everywhere, right? I mean, you've got yep. Japanese knotweed growing in gardens and mm-hmm. actually in places in the UK, for example, we've got these beautiful green parakeet birds flying around London, which is mm-hmm. so pretty, but really yeah. shouldn't be there because they terrorize yeah. everything. And I'm guessing like the, the concept of invasive species, or I should say, you know, regardless of in some ways the definition at this point, but I imagine over time, the prevalence of invasive species and different types of invasive species has just gone up and up and up, right? In terms of how globalized we are, whether it's through shipping and, you know, moving food around the world, I'm likely yep. going to get stuff caught in a bunch of bananas and, and whatever else that we, we're moving from country to country. Are we seeing that there has just been this colossal spread over the last, say, 50, 100 plus years? of these species turning up in places which are actually quite unusual. And if you think about, if we focus on marine, I think the kind of the exponential growth of like shipping and things like that is kind of doing exactly what you're talking about before when we weren't moving as humans, because one of the main ways invasive species can spread is hitching rides on humans and our boats, our vehicles, things like that. And so the more we move, the higher the chances that we're going to be taking some species with us, which like you said, is one of the reasons why we do lots of things like washing our boats off, checking your tires when you drive across countries, not taking when people cross borders, they're very strict about the types of fruits and vegetables that you can bring with you, things like that. But yeah, the more humans move, the higher chance we have. And it's, it's like you said, kind of an exponential growth curve as we move more, the number of invasive species really rose. Yeah. How bad is it? I mean, appreciating you've got couple of species that are particularly interested at the moment in terms of studying but when we talk about invasive species pretty much all being detrimental right to the ecosystem in which they're settling in how bad are we talking one of the, the statistics we always talk about is just money so if we think about what this is costing us the management of invasive species repairing damage and stuff like that it's trillions of dollars globally trillions of dollars globally are spent in removing invasive species, fixing things, anti-fouling, all that stuff, just science, all that type of stuff. So it's a huge, huge, huge sink for money. 
And so if you're just a numbers person like that, that is one thing. But if you think more thinking about the ecosystems, it's depending on where you're at, it's changing things. It's causing species extinctions to go up. And so a lot of times why um, invasive species are bad is because they can just outcompete native species. And so you get this non-native species in, it's released from a lot of the pressures of its native habitat. Maybe it doesn't have any parasites or blights or things like that. It doesn't have any natural predators. And so it just thrives. And oftentimes that leads to it outcompeting native species or eating the native species, moving them out of space. And then you get these native species that we care about and they become endangered. Or you can even get local extirpations, which is where you've got like a, a small habitat patch and that species is completely gone from that habitat. Habitat. So that's one of the things I care about is, is the change in species composition. The other thing that an invasive species can do is they can actually change the habitat. And so if you think about like things like shellfish, they are big habitat builders. And so they can change the way that our shorelines look. One of the species that I study is the European green crab, and those tend to destroy seagrass beds. And so seagrass beds are really, really important for a lot of different things. They're nursery grounds, they help clean our water. And so by removing those grasses, we then have just these mudflats, which is a completely different ecosystem. And so those are kind of the, the main ways that we see or that we try to talk about, especially when we're talking to the public, because those are very visceral things. You can say, well, you can see you used to have a beautiful seagrass bed here. Now you just have mud or something like that. It, um, you try to evoke that kind of imagery so that people understand why invasive species can be detrimental. And I guess to your point, normally they are exceptionally good at surviving, right? And often that means they can be poisonous. They can be prickly. They could be the natural hunters of species. Mm-hmm. And I guess your point yeah. is it's the disruption of not just a, a status quo, right? Because that's not always mm-hmm. bad, but it's more the loss of yeah. the fundamental system that's been working for sometimes, fair enough, changing, but it's been working yeah. as dynamism for thousands, mm-hmm. sometimes millions of years, right? I mean, these are yeah. these are ecosystems that have been running our planet and our mm-hmm. our fresh air and our water and our weather and everything else. And even your point around seagrasses, I mean, there's probably, I can't actually think of another single species of plant, let's say, particularly within the marine environment mm-hmm. that has such a positive impact on mm-hmm. you know, carbon capture. And like you said, it's being the nursery ground of, of so many mm-hmm. species, which mm-hmm. in turn supports the whole global marine food chain, right? Which in then yeah. our food chain. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the examples from the studies that are the species that I study, so the invasive lionfish. So they're native in um, the Indo-Pacific in areas like Australia, Indonesia, and in their native ranges, they're really low densities. So you don't find a lot of them they're really cool to look at. And so they've become a popular aquarium fish because they're just beautiful. They've got these lovely stripes. They've got these iridescent kind of finishes on their fins and they're just really frilly and they're just beautiful. But they're kind of, you know, they've been they've been described as a perfect invader because when in the non-native range, so areas like Florida, the Caribbean, all the way down into South America, Gulf of Mexico, 
not very many things eat them, if at all. They tend to have fewer parasites than they do in their native range and of native species. And then they're very indiscriminate about what they eat. And so they'll eat parrot fishes, which are really good for reef health. And they're also a big commercial species. They'll eat juvenile grouper, which are another big commercial species. And then it kind of removes that like competition that they would have when the grouper get bigger. And so they're kind of that hey, we're thriving in this area, nothing's bothering us. There have been some instances of ulcers on them, but kind of outside of being sick, they just do really well. They just kind of hang out on the reef, nothing eats them, they eat whatever they want. And so, yeah, that's kind of one of those like perfect examples of something that's removed from all its pressures and then just basically explodes its population. I think lionfish is the one thing that I um, have since learning about them. I've been obviously trying to prep for speaking to someone yeah. as smart as you on these kind of topics. One, one kind of species that is just fascinating. I mean, to look at them and we'll make sure we share some pictures and, and stuff with this with this podcast because they're extraordinary. You know, they've got these beautiful spines. They're incredibly mm-hmm. colorful and bright, literally sort of orange and browns. And they look kind of lazy. They look super chill, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if their faces almost look just mm-hmm. so human to the extent that you know that's your resting face entirely. Yeah. That's your chilling face. And yeah. they move quite slowly. I mean, they're not, they don't, you know, they're not shark-like in their approach mm-hmm. or their kind of streamlineness. They they are they hover a lot. Yeah, they hover. And yeah. they're the kind of species that you almost believe to be indicative of a healthy environment, right? You see them in the aquariums and you see the color, you see that kind of I don't know, they just look really old and established and and fascinating. Mm -hmm. But to your point, I mean, these fish are now have actually made their way over to across the Atlantic and they're actually now in the Mediterranean, apparently, via the Suez Mm -hmm. Canal. So talking about them being, I say, your patch, like on the other side of you, Canada and and the US, in the Indo-Pacific kind of region, they are making their way now globally, right? I mean, this is a species that has been too good at being invasive. Yeah, it really is. And one of the reasons it's interesting because they've been found in so many different environments. You can find them in really low salinity waters and people have actually even found them up rivers. You can find them at incredible depths up to like 300 meters, which is way beyond what most divers can get to. You find them on seagrass beds, you find them on reefs, you find them on natural structures, you find them sitting on a patch of sand with nothing else around them. And so they're just kind of happy everywhere, which is just, you know, so it's like, okay, you can't just focus on coral reefs. They'll always be there. No, they will not. They will be on a random crate that somebody dropped in the water and that is where they live. You know, they'll be in a river. And so they're an extraordinarily resilient species, which is, you know, not great for an invasive species, but great for them as (laughs) individuals. Sure, sure. And how did they get there and I mean everywhere is my is more the question because every species comes from somewhere right so where were they native where was home for the lionfish they're native in Australia and Indonesia and as I said before because they're so beautiful they're they were traded very heavily as a aquarium species so there's not an exact like pinpoint as to where these invasive species came from and there's a couple of different thoughts where kind of the classic like I got this fish and it ate everything in my aquarium 
aquarium. So I dumped it into the ocean. And so there are probably a lot of occurrences of that enough to where the species could then establish. There's also some evidence that like a freighter ship that was carrying some of these lost some of them in a big storm and basically kind of just like dumped a bunch of them into the ocean. And so the only real knowledge is that it's almost, you know, 99% guaranteed it's human's fault that they're there. Otherwise, there's no way that they would have made it naturally over to the coast of Florida from Australia. That's not going to happen naturally. And so it's definitely one of the examples of like a human introduction. So, and I'm just going to test you on that, Alex, because I feel as in they wouldn't have made that journey. It's an exceptional mm-hmm. journey, right? Any mm-hmm. sailor who's done that will know just how big a piece of water we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Would they would not have made that because it's such a, a long way to go and there's so much depth mm-hmm. and there's so much danger, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or is it also to do with sea temperatures? Because arguably, do you feel that because of sea temperatures rising, mm-hmm. native species then potentially have the capacity to be spreading further because their, their temperate, natural, happy place mm-hmm. and zone in terms of, you know, whether it's the food that they can eat, whether it's the warmth that they can survive in, whether it's the salinity, to your point, if that changes mm-hmm. in our global waters, then that gives them potentially a lot more license to spread a lot more further over time. I guess to your point, it's maybe mm-hmm. the time at which the lionfish or the time in which the lionfish was spread is mm-hmm. very unnatural. But perhaps over talking, you know, a couple of hundred years, can we expect to see actual natural migratory patterns of of different species because of our climate changing? Yeah. So there's kind of two different parts to that. And so one is just like the concept. So if you're thinking about basically physical barriers to moving, and so that could be something like a mountain range or a huge, basically, quote, empty ocean. And so there's a lot of species that just won't be able to cross those barriers kind of regardless, even if their temperature is higher or something like that. It's just too big of a physical barrier for them to do it naturally on their own. And so that's where when we see these anthropogenic introductions, it's like, okay, I physically picked up and moved this species in a way that it never will ever be able to move on its own. It will never cross that natural barrier. And so that's something that we kind of see with like a lot of ballast water introductions. Like those larvae will not physically get from the ocean to the Great Lakes on their own. We did that. But to your point about kind of climate change and changing temperatures and changing environments, that's definitely, that's what we call like a range expansion. And so for lionfish especially, so they are limited by sea surface temperatures. And so as our sea surface temperatures start getting warmer and warmer and warmer closer to the poles, if that's their limiting factor, they will then start moving outside of the range that they currently are. And so, and that can apply to a lot of different things. And so for the ocean, a lot of what we see is we get those tropical and warmer species just moving further and further up because they now can survive in what we had like colder climates. And so for lionfish specifically, during the summer, you'll get them all the way up the coast of the U.S. Like to like places like Rhode Island and New York, but they're very seasonal there. As temperature changes, that could also change. And one of the things that we also think about for lionfish is kind of a reintroduction into the Pacific. And so again, kind of like along the coast of California up in Oregon, it's very, very cold. It's a very temperate climate. But if that climate shifts and those waters stay warmer for longer, 
then it becomes a suitable habitat for those species that we would never find there naturally. So mm -hmm. there's kind of those two different parts of that invasive spread. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's an awesome explanation. Thank you. Because I think mm -hmm. obviously we are, we do have a huge part to play in a variety of species spreading around the world, right? But there was also this undertone of, oh, crikey, what's it going to look like in a couple of mm -hmm. years' time? Because to your point, I mean, invasive species... I was, like I said, I was really annoyed when you uh, heard about lionfish as an invasive species and then, then you see them and you're like, oh, but why? Why are these? They're so beautiful, I know. Exactly. But then, yeah. you know, to your point, invasive species aren't, aren't positive, right? And it could be lionfish or we could be seeing, you know, jellies spreading further because of mm -hmm. how much warmer um, temperatures our waters get. And they too, I mean, jellyfish, as incredible as they are, I mean, they impact everybody. I mean, they don't, mm -hmm. not just from a leisure perspective and swimming, but they really don't have, I guess, aside from turtles, many other predators at all in the ocean, right? So they're very, mm -hmm. controlling those kind of populations if they get out of hand is, mm -hmm. is near impossible. What are some of the ways that you found or heard to be most impactful in controlling them? Because I appreciate, mm -hmm. again, each species is different, right? So that's a, that's a tough yeah. job. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously the best way is prevention. And so that's why, especially for things like ballast water and like things like cleaning your boat bottom, that's, there's so much effort put into that because if you can prevent the species from ever showing up, you never get a, give it a chance to establish. And so, and that, you know, for some of that, it's a little too little too late. You know, there's a lot of species that have happened and now we're trying to control increase in populations, but prevention is always the best way. And you can kind of think about, invasive species populations establishing in like a very sequential way. And so prevention is one. If you can catch it before it happens, you're good. You've got none of the species there. If you can then have monitoring programs. So if you know that your harbor or your waterway or whatever area you're managing is likely to have invasive species, then you can monitor that. And that's, again, why we check things like ballast water. That's why we regulate what can go across borders. We know that people will likely bring these in purposefully or accidentally and we're going to monitor that and we're going to prevent it if that happens and then along with monitoring you can think okay well if you're thinking about a range expansion so for lionfish and for green crab we know they're in areas and because the ocean is open we know that they're likely to move and so okay the my neighboring country my neighboring state my neighboring province they have green crab they have lionfish we are now going to monitor knowing that it's likely that they will start to show up and so if you can catch those and remove them whichever way you can, when they're really, really low densities, that also kind of negates them from establishing as a population. And so that's what a lot of people are doing with these kind of really prolific species that we know are probably going to start creeping into different ranges. So you try and catch them at really low densities because that's your best chance. There's a lot of different ways, depending on the species, that you can actually do removal efforts. Um, things for like lionfish and green crab, it's all hand by hand. You're either trapping or you're netting, removing them by hand. Different species, you can do things like, you know, for plants, obviously things like herbicides are really helpful. One thing you never want to do <laughs> is introduce a predator for your potential invasive species or something, introduce something else to control it. I don't think that has ever ended well for anybody. And so that's one that's 
off the table or you introduce like a snake or a bird to get some rodent. And basically, instead of going after the invasive species, which is really good at surviving, it goes after things that have never seen that type of predator before. And so I'm a little rodent. I've never seen this like thing that's hunting me. I don't know to be afraid of it. And it just devastates the populations. And so a lot of times with what people will suggest or think about doing is introducing a bigger predator. And so for lionfish, it would be something like a grouper. You can't predict what's going to happen. If this species is doing a good job avoiding predation from what's already there, they're probably going to avoid predation from something else that you introduce. So it's never a good option. <laughs> I guess to your point, maybe too much intervention or the wrong kind of intervention is almost makes the matters worse, right? Because we're talking about yeah. ecosystems. I mean, these are they've survived for long enough in a dynamic without us, right? So there's a fine line between how much we do get involved and introduce and try and mm-hmm. change things versus how much should happen in some ways a little bit more naturally. Yeah, so for lionfish, where we're at right now, it's all it's mostly hand removals. And so there have been some studies that have tried to figure out if we can kind of acclimate native predators. So like you said, like a shark or um, even like more rate eels or a really big grouper. So Nassau grouper, kind of the one of the big, almost like dog-like groupers on the, a lot of the reefs in the invaded range. And they will eat lionfish, despite the fact that lionfish have venomous spines. They can eat them, especially if they eat them face first, so they're not getting poked. But there are so many other things for the native species to eat that it's not necessarily worth, you know, to be very anthropomorphizing them. It's not really worth their time to learn how to eat lionfish. They'll eat them if you spear them and feed them to them. They're like, yes, free snack. But there hasn't been a whole lot of evidence that they're learning or becoming more willing to eat lionfish. So biocontrol is one thing people think about a lot, but it's not always, it's not always the answer. It is nice to think about because if we can find something, a parasite or something that can compete with them or eat them, it makes it very easy to think about. But in the case of lionfish and a lot of these things, it ends up being human removal just because messing with putting something else into the environment often ends badly. And I guess even with, say, the reintroduction of larger adult grouper, they get eaten by us, right? I mean, these are commercial fish. So how do you say you'd have Mm -hmm. to ban commercial fishing on things like grouper in order to get the lionfish population down? I mean, I understand Mm -hmm. there were some efforts in the in the Caribbean, and I think certainly there's they're looking at doing something similar in the med around people eating them, right? I mean, these lionfish yes. are edible by us. Yeah, they're quite edible. They're have you tasted quite, one? Yeah. So I'm typically a vegetarian, but I do make an exception for my study species. They're just like a very mild white fish. So they tend to have lionfish are in the scorpion fish family. And so they have these like really, really big heads, which is really funny. And their fillets aren't always that big, but because they're in such high densities in a lot of these places, you can get a lot of fish like going out on a reef and spearing them. And like you said, in the Caribbean and especially in Florida, they're doing like a lot of effort. You know, they've got like a lionfish cookbook that you can do. They do a lot of derbies where they encourage people to go out and they can spear lionfish in like marine protected areas where they wouldn't be able to spear normally just to get people out there. Because at this point, 
kind of human removal is one of the best ways to, is basically the only way to get rid of lionfish in the numbers that we want. And so, yeah, so things like that are really great. I know um, some places in the Bahamas will even offer the same amount of money per pound for lionfish that they would do for things like spiny lobster to one, encourage fishermen to go out and do get lionfish, but it also reduces the poaching of native species because things like lobster and grouper are managed very strictly. And so if you're offering people um, a different way to kind of continue their livelihood by helping you remove this invasive species, it helps quite a lot. So the, so things like that are, are a great way to like engage the public and have them go out, especially if you're helping them like continue their livelihood as fishermen and things like that. For green crab, there's not quite the same market for them as food. I know in places on the East Coast, they've kind of made them into almost like little green crab poppers. You know, you can kind of fry them as a whole there because they can be quite tiny, you know, about the size of a dime or a nickel or something like that. But it's not a big crab that you can like a Dungeness or something like that. And so So that's one thing that they're thinking about. But I think for green crab, one of the things that they're trying to think about is there's a group working on creating like a bioplastic out of green crab carapace shells. And so that's, you know, like another thing, like if we can harvest the green crab, what do we do with it? So there's a couple of ways like that. And that just encourages, I think, a lot more engagement of both industry and public if you can can show them as a resource. The one thing to think about, though, is that if you are encouraging people to go out and use these invasive species as a resource, you all always want to make sure it's like, we're doing this to get rid of them. We don't want this to be an established livelihood. You know, lionfish will never become a long-time fishery. That's not what we want. We don't want that. We don't want lionfish to be fished forever. We want them to be gone. Same with green crab. And there are places like on the East coast of the U.S. and Canada, they're kind of there for stay. So that could be something where it's like, we know we're not going to be able to get rid of them. It's just, we're just too far gone at this point because they've been there for over a hundred years. So that might be a place where it's like, okay, we can have some sort of small industry around it. On the West Coast of Canada and the U.S., however, we're still in places where we don't see them. And so we're very much like we we just want to prevent spread. We want to get rid of them. And we want to figure out how to do it very efficiently because we don't want to end up like the East Coast of this continent is. That's a really good point. If you if you create a market for it, Mm-hmm. And there's the potential, obviously, for it to become bigger than one can control ultimately. But it does make you think, right? And all you mm-hmm. all you ultimately need, by the sounds of it, is someone to take it home as a pet on the West Coast or East Coast, vice versa, mm-hmm. and then get bored of it one day and then go and dump it in a waterway somewhere and set it free. And mm-hmm. then it becomes this you know, whole, whole new kind of group of invasive species elsewhere. It does make you, yeah, it does make you think, right? Not all fish belong in the sea. Yeah, the area of sea. You know, there's actually yeah. different colonies and different mm-hmm. habitats and homes in this big, you know, crazy ocean that we've got. Mm-hmm. It's just so yeah. so fascinating. Hey, it's just such an interesting topic. One thing I did that has sort of plopped into my mind is we've obviously got this endemic plastic pollution problem, right? We've got more ocean pollution now than we've ever had in the history of ever. These are hard, normally quite hard substances that travel for hundreds, thousands of miles, sometimes hundreds of thousands of miles in a lifetime just circulating through ocean currents. Plastics aren't just a flat surface. I mean, there's there's obviously an opportunity for bacteria or viruses or whatever else to be living on and breeding on the surface of these pollutive objects that are moving through mm-hmm. our waters. Mm-hmm. Is that an opportunity? Is that a thing that our pollution problem, our global pollution problem 
in our seas is actually also helping to transport stuff we really don't want it to. Yeah, that is a good point. And again, I might I might get my dates and my names wrong, but when the huge tsunami happened in Japan, there was a big effort to think about what is going to happen when all of the debris from that tsunami wreckage eventually makes it to the coast of North America. And so that was a very big thing because like there was the potential for kind of some of the like chemicals and pollutants to come, but there was going to be also very big physical objects that theoretically could carry species because when species find things in the open ocean, we've got those big trash piles in the open ocean, they'll live there, you know, you you form these communities. And so that was a big worry. I know this was what, five or six years ago when that happened, people were very worried that we were going to start getting some species coming over. And so I think in the long run, it ended up not being a problem, but it is something to think about when we've got these big circulating things of trash, even just natural debris, woody debris, things like that, that eventually just make their way around. And again, that's not necessarily something that's new. There's always been debris circulating, but you're right. Like plastic have a much longer life than something, say something like a tree. You know, if you've got a big plastic container that will be there for hundreds of years, as opposed to a tree, which will decompose naturally, you know, long before that. And so it creates these more permanent kind of floating debris microhabitats that can attract and move species in a way that they wouldn't have moved before. And also, you know, yeah. how fascinating they are, but actually why we should really care. You know, this is a not just our habitats and our ecosystems, mm-hmm. but actually our food sources and healthy waters, right? And these are waters we sail but swim in. Yeah. And, and that support all of our lives. So if we can still use our waters, why do we need to care about invasive species? And it reminded me of an analogy somebody gave me about climate change, about, you know, if you have a fever for a day or two, it's really easy for you to recover. But if you, well, kind of what our earth is going through now is just a chronic fever. The threshold is just so much lower. And I think of invasive, like a planet living with all the, or an ecosystem living with these invasive species is they're just kind of chronically ill. They can look good. You can still interact with them. They're doing well. But one thing will just set them over the edge and it's just so much harder for the the ecosystem to recover. And so, especially in systems where they still look healthy, they look great, you can interact with them the same way. It's hard to care about invasive species because everything looks normal. But if we're thinking about ourselves as a, a, a living entity and something that needs to be taken care of because we want it to grow old, we have to deal with these kind of chronic issues that mm-hmm. are just, like you said, due to a lot of different things, just becoming more and more frequent in our in our systems. So, Alex, thank you. Thank you again for, for joining me and for sparing the time to, to guide us through this incredibly complex topic. Um, keep yeah. up to date with your work. Can't wait to see... <laughs> some more solutions that you come out with and how you help to manage these lionfish and green crabs in particular. Really cool stuff. Yeah, well, hopefully I've got a a paper in review about lionfish management. So I will send it your way as soon as it goes through the the final stages of publishing. So yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Clean Sailors podcast. All relevant links to the projects and people we talk to can be found with the podcast link. For all episodes or to get in touch, just visit cleansailors.com. We love to hear from you. We believe that great ideas should be shared, which is why our podcast is free to appear on. So if you've got a project, idea or topic you think we should be discussing, get in touch. In the meantime, 
Thank you for listening and see you for the next episode.